Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. Game at Target Field. That's our twins tradition. Come share yours. Enjoy the same great seat location all season long with a 20, 40, or full season plan. Go to twinsbaseball.com slash season tickets. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, April 20th. And you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. And we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore national security issues. When we consider the ramifications of geography on strategic issues like economics, military power and power projection, and even national boundaries, we often find it easier to look at places that are really more easily understood in our Western culture. Ukraine, for instance, has had her borders violated by the Russian military. Looking at Ukraine's geography, we see that Ukraine is often referred to as the breadbasket of the world because the land in Ukraine is so perfect for growing wheat, among many other crops. The Dnieper River bisects Ukraine and flows south to the Black Sea. That river, as a geographic feature, figures prominently in Ukraine's overall economy, national security, and even Ukraine's national identity. Let's keep those ideas in mind as we transition over to another region of the world where a major river system has so much influence on the livelihood of the people who live along its banks. We're going to take an in-depth look today at the Mekong River in Southeast Asia, The Mekong River has been the lifeblood of the Southeast Asian region for centuries. Lately, national interests have led to competition for the resources the river offers. Competition can lead to hostile posturing and potentially to open conflict. As students of national security, we study issues that could lead to such hostilities, hopefully finding solutions to head off conflict before it happens. With us today are two people who have long studied Southeast Asia and the importance of the Mekong River, and they can enlighten us on the issues involved. Our first guest is Brian Eiler. Brian Eiler directs the Southeast Asia Program and the Energy, Water, and Sustainability Program at the Stimson Center. He's an expert on transboundary issues in the Mekong region and specializes in China's economic cooperation with Southeast Asia. Brian spent more than 15 years living and working in China, and he has conducted extensive research with stakeholders in the Mekong region. He's widely recognized as a leading voice on environmental, energy, and water security issues in the Mekong. Brian is co-lead on the Mekong Dam Monitor, and he also serves as chair of the Stimson Center's War Legacy Working Group. His first book, Last Days of the Mighty Mekong, was published by Zed Books in 2019. He holds a Master of Arts from the University of California, San Diego, and a Bachelor of Arts from Bucknell University. Our other guest is Alan Basiste, who has worked in the climate sciences, sciences for almost 40 years. Alan's experience ranges from work as a research scientist at the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, to an employee of a reinsurance company, to an entrepreneur identifying climate variability, as well as promoting mitigation and risk management strategies. 
He was a founding member of the rapid response team that prepared reports on the state of the climate for the White House, for NOAA headquarters, and for numerous public press releases. Allen received awards as a meteorologist in the Climate Analysis Center and for superior federal service in the U.S. Department of Commerce. In 2003, Alan Basiste started the company Commodity Hedgers to support the commodity and insurance industry. Renaissance Reinsurance bought that company in 2008. And then in 2013, he started the company Eyes on Earth, where he currently serves as president. Eyes on Earth provides service to the agriculture and insurance industries on climate-related investments, as well as monitoring food and water resources around the world. Alan Basiste is part of a team of scientists that developed land, surface, and wetness products from the microwave satellite observations. These products are supported by 30 years of global data, and the observations are available in near real time under clear and cloudy sky cover throughout the world. He has most recently been working on the development of river flow models. Alan Basiste and Brian Eiler, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you. It's good to be here, John. Thanks for inviting us. So may I ask, uh, where are both of you sitting today? Alan, I'll start with you. I'm sitting in Asheville, North Carolina. And how's the weather there? (laughs) Well, we had a major cold front come through. I'm sure it's much colder where you are in Minnesota. (laughs) Uh, But it's springtime here and my favorite season. And Brian, how about you? I'm hanging out in the Blue Ridge Mountains above the Shenandoah River. Uh, a very different river system, but one <laughs> equally known uh, around the, the, the area and the history of where the Shenandoah is. Well, it sounds like both of you are in wonderful locations to have our conversation this morning. Uh, let's go ahead and get started. We have a lot to cover today. Uh, Alan, I'll start with you. What what drew you to study climate and the, and the Mekong River Basin? Well, originally, as you mentioned, I've been doing studying climate for 40 years. So before the concept of climate change even became a, a primary topic. But as the issues of climate becomes more and more um, prominent and, and, and pro- basically yeah, more prominent, then I've enjoyed taking the, our understanding of data and trying to understand what is going on with the climate and how we can try to mitigate these impacts for, as far as society and the economics, as well as you, as you mentioned, national security around the world. And, and uh, Brian, how about you? What, uh, what drew you to study China and additionally the Mekong River Basin area? Yeah, so first and foremost, I'm a student of China. I spent 15 years living and working there. And I kind of stumbled into the Mekong from uh, being a student in China almost 20 years ago on a grad student research project where I was uh, responding to some news about uh, how trade was picking up between China and Thailand along the Mekong River. Um, And at that time, like these were the frontiers of, of both countries, the frontiers of the frontiers where the trading was beginning to happen. And uh, so I went there to uh, to follow some of the, the cargo going down the river from China all the way to um, the Golden Triangle in Thailand and then getting on trucks to, to head to Bangkok. And um, uh, amidst that experience, I stumbled, this is kind of the falling into this issue, into the... Um, the environmental impacts of dams on the river and ultimately how that was a much more um, uh, relevant issue to look at and to to research. And since then, I've been um, watching dams go up and and watching their impacts play out on the Mekong uh, in the upstream and the downstream. 
and I definitely want to talk about the impact of those dams uh, in a little bit. But uh, get, I think it's probably good to get a little more background on both Stimson Center and some other some other issues before we dive into that. Uh, Brian, you're at the Stimson Center. Alan, I know that you've uh, done some work with the Stimson Center as well. Uh, can can you can you guys tell us tell the audience about you know the Stimson Center, the work that's done at the Stimson Center at that think tank, and and maybe a little bit more about. Uh, the specific work on uh, monitoring the Mekong River. Uh, Alan, why don't we go ahead and start with you again? Okay. The Well, as, as you brought up, and I think it's relevant to this discussion, is that we do work both on food security, which is very much related to the topic of national security around the world. But we have used, we have a wetness product. You alluded to it already in the introduction, which is using satellite observations that provide basically near real-time um, measurements of how much water is at the surface throughout the globe, even under cloudy conditions, which is huge. And microwaves, just like you, your cell phone transmits through clouds and through windows and walls, microwave sensors on the satellite have the capacity to monitor the surface under all sky conditions, which is not available through traditional satellite technology. So what we're doing then is that we're trying, we're using the wetness to understand how much basically water is accumulating in the basin. And we, and we have 30 years of data so we can see and develop a relationship between wetness in the basin and how much water is flowing past the gauge downstream. Mm. We have a very good model to do that. And then as the dams are developed and the reservoirs are filled, then you start altering the natural flow of these rivers. And so what we're doing in conjunction with Stimson, and they're doing it in different capacity, measuring reservoir heights. Brian will speak more to that. Um, we're, we're able to see the impacts of these dams on basically the, the society, the river flow, the economics, the social fabric of, of many of these countries downstream that depend on the natural rhythm of, of the river. And so we're trying to educate and provide data to the community and also to policymakers as to what these impacts are so that they can be smarter about decisions and policies and, and even, even actions so that try to reduce the adversity of these dams on on the societies downstream. So, Alan, you're you're, you're the uh, uh, the scientist here uh, to talk to us about these issues, and and Brian, you're the policy guy. Can you tell us a little bit, Brian, about the Stimson Center's work uh, broadly, yeah. and then specifically about the work that you're doing on on the Mekong River? Yeah, and in, in that, I'm going to tell a little bit of. Of, of the story of how Alan and I met. Oh, that'd be good um, too. <laughs> right. So the, the Stimson Center is a, uh, a think tank in Washington, D.C. That, that focuses on security issues. And um, the Stimson Center got its start on working on nuclear non-proliferation issues at the end of the Cold War. Um, but uh, over the last 30 years has expanded its research portfolio um, across a range of security issues. So my issue area of the programs that I manage really hits the non-traditional security uh, area and um, looking at water security and environmental security and, and um, food security and, and some of the areas that we've touched on so far. Um, our, our program uh, was the first to really look at Mekong issues uh, both deeply and broadly and inform 
key uh, uh, people in Washington, uh, the State Department and other agencies on why it's really important to have a, a good uh, kind of foreign policy approach towards mainland Southeast Asia through a, a Mekong framing uh, and, um, and how the, this benefits the people of the Mekong and also benefits the United States as well. Um, so we've been, we had long been um, looking at the dams issue. Um, we helped the Obama administration set up the Lower Mekong Initiative in 2009. Um, and we're really deeply into uh, promoting the renewable energy transition um, in the region as a way to substitute away from hydropower dams. So, you know, building more solar and wind um, as a way to build fewer dams, but help countries meet their power generation and, and energy demand um, goals. When, um, about two years ago, uh, I, I came across Allen's research, which very definitively, uh, for the first time, showed us what the impacts of China's upstream dams were on the Mekong in the downstream. And this was important because no one had known this before. China's got some of the largest dams um, in the world built on the upstream uh, and provides no data to downstream people or, or government officials or, or, or communities who are affected by the operations of these dams. Um, so long was there a big question mark over those impacts. It was only speculation. And what Alan's uh, work did was, uh, again, very definitively show the degree to which those dams were impacting the downstream, when the impacts were happening, and for how long. Um, so once I saw his research, you know, he and I teamed up very quickly um, to promote that research. And through that, we built the Mekong Dam Monitor, um, which provides near real-time reporting on the impacts of those dams to vulnerable communities and government officials downstream. Um, and uh, so, Alan, it's, it's been an interesting journey. The two of us have only met physically like twice, <laughs> but we, we talk to each other numerous times a week virtually and on the phone. Um, and we've done all of this work and created all these deep impacts um, during the pandemic um, in a very virtual setting online. Uh, and it's been just a very productive uh, two years of, of collaboration together. The power of the video conferencing technology, right? <laughs> How about it? How about it? So for our audience, you're, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Alan Basiste from Eyes on Earth and Brian Eiler from the Stimson Center in Washington, D.C. We're discussing the strategic importance of the Mekong River in Southeast Asia. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, and jump in a more detailed discussion on the Mekong. I'll, I'll offer it up to either of you to start. Uh, can you give us a sense of the geography of the Mekong River? You know where it begins, where it flows, which nations are impacted by the river system, and and including maybe the many tributaries that probably flow into the Mekong uh, in those re in the regional area. I'll, I'll take that first and then kick it to Alan because he recently visited uh, Cambodia um, and, and has a lot of you know, kind of a fresh take on what's happening there. But the Mekong River system is a it's one of the world's largest river systems. Uh, it's transboundary. It runs from China through uh, portions of Myanmar. Um, uh, its basin actually is in a large portion of the country of Laos a large portion of the country of Cambodia uh, uh, and Thailand as well. Um, and then it empties into the ocean on the Mekong Delta and Vietnam, which is a, a landscape or a waterscape, if you will, that is roughly the size of West Virginia. 
Um, but it can too be described as one of the world's uh, grain baskets. In this case, it's rice. Um, the Mekong Delta is responsible for producing over 50% of Vietnam's rice export and a large portion of its much larger portion of its fruit and aqu aquaculture export like shrimp and fish. Um, so it's a really important both security space for food security for Vietnam, um, which you know is like the 12th largest populated country in the world, uh, as well as uh, an income earner uh, because it's a food export zone. Um, the Mekong River is the world's most productive river, uh, both in terms of agricultural output and fisheries when you combine it together. Um, it's home to 20% of the world's freshwater fish catch. Um, and so the Mekong River itself um, produces 13 times more fish than all of North America's rivers and lakes combined. It's really, it's, it's, it's a really hard fact um, <laughs> to, uh, to, to wrap your head around that, that one river produces this under its natural conditions. Uh, and dams that are going up, um, and there's something like more than 400 uh, dams built now in the system. Uh, 11 of them are in China on the mainstream. They're some of the largest in the world. Um, there are two more on the downstream in Laos, so many more scheduled to be built. All the rest are on tributaries. Um, they're delivering a death of a thousand cuts to the tens of millions of people, uh, the ecosystem and the, the fish population that, that really makes the Mekong mighty. Um, and uh, to what extent they are, uh, they, they pitched the the, the mightiness of the Mekong past the point of no return is a research question that has yet to be answered. But um, communities and fisheries and agricultural outputs of the Mekong have been suffering recently due to both the impacts of dams and, uh, and, and climate change. And Alan just went to the region um, and observed uh, something, some things happening on the Tonle Sap in Cambodia. And the, the Tonle Sap is a really unique feature of the Mekong. And here's where I'm going to kick it over to Alan to talk a bit about why the Tonle Sap makes the Mekong a really uh, unique river system in the world. Thank you, Brian. That was a really good overview. I'm going to start at the upper reaches of the Mekong so that people have a sense of its geography. It, it starts up in the Tibetan Plateau, which is the plateau is, you know, has a mean elevation over 10, 12,000 feet. So it's extremely high. And the mountains, of course, are, are higher than that. And the river basically cuts through a canyon that is comparable to the Grand Canyon. So you just have this image of these huge canyons coming out of the Tibetan Plateau. Hmm. And, the, and the, the, mighty, the mighty Mekong cuts its way much like the Colorado River does. And so it's a perfect place to, to build dams, just like we have Lake Powell and Lake Mead. We have on Grand Canyon, um, we have Hoover Dam and the, what is it, the Glen Canyon Dam. Um, so major dams on this river and some of the biggest reservoirs behind them that can hold, I think, together, there's two dams on the river, Shiawan and Najadu, that can hold as much water, if, and Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, as, as the Chesapeake Bay. That's about right. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a phenomenal amount of water. And the Mekong has a distinct wet season and a dry season um, and very pronounced. The, the wet season starts around May, June timeframe, and it ends around October timeframe, um, maybe a little into November. And then, then a dry season develops, much like India. So it's, climate is not that different from, from the Indian subcontinent. Huge dry season, 
very little rainfall. And the Mekong reflects that in its flow. Um, when, so it's coming out of, out of the Benton Plateau, snow melt, huge canyons, and major dams built on it. And the Chinese are, you know, they're extremely intelligent society and quite, quite capable of building dams. And, and so they built some of the biggest dams in the world on the river. And they're holding water back during the wet season. That's with logical time to hold water back. <laughs> and then they're releasing that water during the dry season so that they can produce hydroelectric power throughout the year. Now, what's happening as a result of that is there's a natural pulse of water that comes out of, out of the Mekong during the wet season that is being held back into these reservoirs. And that pulse would naturally come down into, into Thailand, Laos, and then into Cambodia. And these floods are phenomenal. I had a picture, as, as Brian just alluded, I came back to, from, from Cambodia and we were on the river and I have a picture of a snag, a big log, a tree, that's like 25 feet up in the air. That's how high <laughs> the Mekong rises during the wet season. Wow. And it's caught up in the trees. So, and this is some of the wettest topography in, in the world. They, we get in DC and probably in, in Minnesota too, you get around 40 inches a year and it considered a, a fairly wet area where you can grow a lot of crops. They get four times as much rainfall. In, in the Mekong Basin. And it's limited to basically six months out of the year. Okay. So you can imagine how much rain they get and how that river pulses. Now that pulse is supposed to be coming down and the Mekong rises 10, 15, 20 feet, high enough that the water in the Mekong is higher than the Tonle Sap Lake, a lake that feeds the Mekong during the dry season. But the Mekong is so mighty and so high that the literally the river reverses flow and instead of flowing out of the lake into the river, the river floods into the lake and it swells that lake to five times its size, you know, approaching one of the great lakes as far as its size. And when it floods, when all that water from the Mekong floods into the lake, it's kind of one of the wonders of the world. It brings in the larvae, it brings in the spawn, it floods the grasslands, it floods the forest. It is the reason why all there's a phenomenal fish catch that that you know that is just as I think Brian said 13 times the freshwater catch in North America, and the whole culture is developed around that fish catch. It, it's it's part of the whole social economic fabric of the of the society. Now, when you're holding all that water back by not just the Chinese dams, but dams in Laos and, and Thailand as well, but huge quantities in, in, in China, up in those, those major um, reservoirs, then you're reducing that pulse. Therefore, the Tanli sap doesn't flood. And the, 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 the natural rhythm of bringing in the larvae, bringing in the fertility, bringing in basically promoting the fisheries, which the whole society is dependent upon, is largely reduced which is having a major impact on, on the quality of life and, and basically the, the economy and the welfare of the people that are traditionally dependent upon it. Well, the, the two of you paint a, a dire picture, frankly, of that, that whole river basin system and, uh, and the impacts to not only the, the natural ecology, uh, but the impacts to the people who live along the shores of, uh, of the river system. 
Uh, obviously, we've talked about fisheries uh, being so vitally important to the economy of the region. Uh, what about other other industries that maybe sit astride that massive river system or or the river system as a transportation network? Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, about those two topics? Brian, you want to lead that? Yeah. Um, well, agriculture is uh, is really important uh, as well, and it's not just um, Vietnamese rice that's important, but the Thai rice in Northeast Thailand. Um, nearly all of Cambodia's rice production is is fed by the the flood pulse or the mightiness of the Mekong that Alan described. Um, and uh, you know, interestingly, there there are. You know, people in the Mekong think different things about this rice here. Like Vietnamese actually prefer to eat Cambodian rice because it tastes better, <laughs> and they'd rather export their rice to the rest of the world, uh, particularly to China. Um, and uh, so you can you can imagine there's there's rice export, there's rice consumption, um, and how um, you know the reduction of that natural flood pulse would affect uh, not just the diets of people in the region, but also the income of those countries and, and, and food supply in other parts of the world as well. So this becomes a, a regional issue or a global issue. And, and when, when I'm shopping in either Whole Foods um, or, or Wegmans here on the East Coast, you know, there are products that are from the Mekong. And when I buy those products from the Mekong, whether it's fish or rice, I'm consuming the water of the Mekong and I'm consuming a portion of that, that flood pulse. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other ways that the rivers... Uh, I, I also want to say that um, there's good science out there that shows that that flood pulse of the Mekong is, is magnitudes more productive than the damages that the flood provide. So floods have a positive connotation um, in, in countries like Cambodia and in the Mekong Delta. Um, and uh, so you, you often, for those of us who work on the Mekong, you often hear kind of uh, pro-dam proponents push back on um, the impacts of floods to say they're damaging and, and they, they, they cause casualties and things like that. But there's very little evidence to that. Um, and, um, and in fact, again, the, the benefits of this flooding are magnitudes higher than the damages themselves. Um, but uh, cargo transportation is, is kind of important, uh, particularly between Cambodia and Vietnam um, in the Mekong Delta. Uh, itself, um, the Mekong Delta is engineered for cargo um, and a local kind of water shipping um, with 9,000 uh, miles of canals through it. It's it's really an impressive landscape. Um, but really interestingly, um, the Mekong is not navigable uh, above Cambodia um, for its entire length. There are these natural um, geographic obstacles, basically waterfalls and shoals and rapids at the Cambodian Lao border and then way up uh, in the Golden Triangle in Thailand, the Myanmar and Lao border um, that prevent cargo trade from happening along its entire length. So all the cargo trade that's been uh, happening is really local or say between China and Thailand and the upper portions. Um, Yet there are ambitions to blast uh, through those obstacles. And um, interestingly, it's, it's at those, the, the cataracts or those waterfalls and the rapids and shoals that a lot of the, the um, ecological value of the Mekong is produced, uh, whether it's through fisheries or habitat of some of the larger um, uh, fish that are in the system, like the Mekong giant catfish, uh, the largest fish in the world. 
um, are known to, to live around and, and find habitat around these, uh, these rapids and shoals. So blasting through them um, would uh, add an additional layer of uh, kind of destruction and, and deterioration of the environment. Um, another major industry worth looking at, and we can get into it in the next question, is, is the hydropower industry and, you know, where the demand uh, for dams is coming from and who the beneficiaries are of that electricity production. Um, but we'll save that for, for a bit later. And Alan, any, any comments? Yeah, I would interject that the culture in Cambodia, where I just returned, is so interwoven with with the Mekong. The, the it's their their whole society has been really developed around the Tonle Sap, the fertility of it, um, and the if you go, I, I was intrigued. I'm trying trying to produce an image here. We got on some small boats and we drove through this lake, and you can't even see on the far edge that the lake goes onto the horizon, and we're in these grasslands that the lake has swollen into. And I thought we were on the edge of the lake and we, we, we found these little um, channels through the grasslands. And there was a whole villages behind the grasslands, floating villages that basically their whole life is, is interwoven in, in, on the fishing, fishing industry in which their culture is completely dependent. And so you go into the, and these are houseboats that are basically floating sometimes on oil, empty oil barrels, Traditionally, it was on bamboo, huge piles of bamboo, and the houses float on it. And so when that lake rises 5, 10, 15, 20 feet, these houses rise with it. And they, they stay, they, and then as the lake shrinks, they move, move toward, more towards the middle of the lake. And when you see that fish catches down 40% in the Tonle Sap Lake. around, And so you're seeing the direct impact on, on this whole society that that is enriched by the health and vitality of the lake and there was i went back in there very simple lifestyles but it's the it's culturally being destroyed and so what we're trying to do is trying to help provide data as to how to minimize these impacts and we know that there's development and we know that that dams are going to be built i mean we know that there's energy requirements but how do we get information out to, to show the, the true impacts that it's not just benefits, but there's costs to these, to these technological advancements on, on the Mekong. To, so we're trying to get information out to help policymakers realize that there's got to be a middle ground between maintaining the cultural integrity and while also bringing technological development. To the region. And if I can add in there, you know, Alan described the floating villages. We're not talking about, you know, a handful of floating villages here and there. Um, there are 2 million people who fish out of the Tomei Sap. Um, uh, probably 30% of them are, are living in those floating villages and the rest live in stilted homes and villages around the lake's edge. Um, and those homes are stilted. They're up high on stilts to adjust for that that increase in, in water level in the lake um so tens of millions of people whether it's in laos or northeast thailand or nearly all of cambodia 20 million people in vietnam's mekong delta rely on this river system for their very livelihood and that's what's at stake here and i, I... I would imagine that, you know, culturally, Alan, you've brought this up a number of times, uh, 
people have lived for centuries in a truly sustainable manner. And even as the populations have expanded, they've still maintained a very sustainable lifestyle living on the river and fishing on the river as a main uh, main source of uh, food. Uh, and now we have the hydroelectric dams that are going up, not just along the Mekong directly, but the tributaries as well. Can can the two of you talk a little bit about how much energy is being produced and, and really maybe a little bit more detail about the deleterious impacts to the Mekong as a whole from all these dams? And I'll I'll leave it to either one of you to, to kick us off. Brian's the best person to speak okay. to that So yeah, when we think about dams, um, we've won uh, through one project that we've um, launched called the Mekong Infrastructure Tracker, um, which is supported by USAID and we partner with the Asia Foundation on it. Uh, we've counted the number of dams that have been built. Um, and this is important because all the countries um, are, are have transparency issues with um, reporting on the number of dams that we've built, the kinds of dams and how they're operated. Uh, so our, our team went around with the satellites and found the dams and traced the reservoirs and found the points of their dams. And we've got an online database um, and have determined that, yeah, there's something like 436 dams completed uh, throughout the entirety of the Mekong. Uh, interestingly, Thailand has the most, uh, over 150. Um, and these are built all entirely on tributaries of the Mekong, and some of them are quite small. Um, uh, China's got the largest, we've mentioned that. Laos uh, has ambitions to become the battery of Southeast Asia uh, and has about 100 dams uh, either completed or, or under construction right now, and um, seeks to sell the the hydropower generated by those dams to the neighborhood as a way to um, kind of maintain its viability as a state. You know, it's, it's banked its future as a, as a landlocked state on the income and foreign currency generated by the production of power from these dams. Um, and the idea is to, to sell the power to Thailand and to Vietnam. Originally, there was some ambition for Laos to sell power to China, but China's got so much power generation right now, actually there's a huge excess amount of power generation that that's no longer part of the, the plan. Um, and in fact, Laos has over uh, produced dams. Uh, there are enough markets now in Thailand and Vietnam for hydropower uh, from Laos. And that's... Uh, it's kind of throwing a spanner in the works of Laos's plans to become the battery of Southeast Asia. Um, but what's interesting, if you think about the, the beneficiaries, and then Alan, I'll kick it over to you to talk about, again about the impacts of these dams. Um, the beneficiaries of, of these dams are people who, one, consume power from them, and then two, obviously, you know, the constructors of, of the, the dams and operators. And the, the power uh, consumption zones are far away from the areas of impact. So, you know, the, the people that are impacted, tens of millions of people are in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam Delta. The consumers of the power are in Bangkok, in Hanoi. Um, in, in China, the case, the power is sent to the east coast of China for manufacturing purposes. So, you know, they're making all of our Christmas presents um, <laughs> in, in, on the east coast of China. So, you know, we're the consumers of the power um, in many ways there, um, being, being here in America, buying Chinese goods. Um, and uh, so there's a great imbalance between where the beneficiaries are and those that are impacted. So it's not just a straight on cost benefit analysis. It's, it's one that has regional uh, and, and, and global inequality 
built into it. And Alan? And to add to that, putting a, a scientific perspective on this, this part of the conversation is that with our satellite data, we can see what would be natural flow, which is huge. So we, we can understand with, since we built a model during the time before many of these major dams were built and the model is, is, has a predictive skill of 91%. So it's a very mm -hmm. accurate model. And we can predict how much water would naturally be flowing down the river by measuring how much wetness or soil moisture or groundwater is accumulating upstream that would that is basically flowing into the river basin into the main stem of the Mekong. And so what we're hoping to do is providing data and information as to what these real impacts are, how the, the natural rhythm of the river is being directly um, altered with the hopes that policymakers will, will take this information about these impacts and then use their, their knowledge, their expertise, and try to mitigate some of these severe impacts. I mean, we, Brian and I have been talking numerous times about hydro peaking coming out of the um, Jihong Dam, in the, the dam that's lowest in the Mekong, in the Chinese section of, of the Mekong before it enters Miramar and Thailand. And so what they're doing, and hydro peaking basically means that we need energy now. So let's let water out of the dam, produce electricity. Now we don't need the energy anymore, three, four, five, six hours later. So we will we'll shut down the, the dam. And what that does is the river rapidly rises and then rap or rapidly rises and then rapidly drops called hydro peaking. Oof. This is rivers don't do this naturally. No. They don't <laughs> rapidly rise and drop. And so what we're trying to say is, you know, we understand what the natural rhythm of the river would be. Let's try to be smart about how we're using these dams to mitigate some of these severe impacts and try to simulate some natural rhythm of the river that is more aligned with its, its natural ecology and the, and, the, and the beneficiaries downstream. You know, it's interesting that uh, all of these things that the two of you, uh, Brian Eiler and Alan Basiste, are, are talking about with regards to Mekong and the, and the hydroelectric projects and whatnot that are along the river, uh, these same things are, are happening elsewhere in the world. I mean, if you look at the Pacific Northwest here in the United States, we've been destroying dams to try and return those rivers back to their natural flows. We know that the Colorado River is a vital producer of power, but it's also a vital producer of water, and that the dams that we put along the Colorado River dramatically impacted uh, the downflow uh, all the way down to uh, uh, Baja. If you look at uh, what's happening with the Nile River, uh, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam that the Ethiopians have just constructed and started to fill imp impacts the Blue Nile, which is 70% of the water that flows into the main Nile River. And both Sudan and especially Egypt rely completely on the Nile River for fresh water and a whole host of other things. So these river systems, these major river systems that we talk about, uh, they have tremendous impacts uh, on the societies that live along their banks. I have to think that uh, the people who live, you know, sort of downstream on the Mekong rely heavily on the Mekong for fresh drinking water. And anything that impacts their, their access to, to fresh water is going to directly impact their ability to live. Uh, is that a true statement? Brian, you want to touch? Yeah, uh, for sure. And, and you know, the quality of water in the Mekong 
um, above Cambodia is by and large quite good. Uh, in fact, the Thais um, have been pumping water out of the Mekong mainstream and they send it into their portion of the Mekong. So eventually it could make its way back into the system. Um, and they do that for local water use, for irrigation, and, and also for some drinking water. Um, uh, Phnom Penh, a, uh, a major city, uh, it's, it's, it is the largest city along the Mekong's mainstream, of course, the capital of Cambodia, of course, um, uh, its drinking water is entirely from the Mekong Basin um, and needs to be kept at a high uh, uh, quality level. Um, and previously, the Mekong did that for, for the people of Phnom Penh. The, the city itself was surrounded by wetlands and, um, and lakes. Uh, and in fact, there used to be a lot of lakes in the city itself that served as a natural filter for, uh, for water then used for consumption. Um, but so much has been happening along the land of the Mekong. And if we take Phnom Penh as, as an example, filling in lakes, filling in the wetlands around Phnom Penh um, to degrade the quality of water, to degrade the kind of the, um, the way that water supported life uh, uh, around that city. Uh, so much so now that the water quality issue is really becoming uh, a major problem. Um, and where in the past you had something that did everything for you for free, you know, nature provided these, uh, these benefits for free. Um, now the solution is to rely more and more on human infrastructure, human built infrastructure uh, to solve uh, the problems of, of water quality and water provision. Uh, the same can be said for the Mekong Delta. You know, I talked to people who grew up in the Mekong Delta, like at the time of the Vietnam War, um, and despite that there was a war going on around them, they they um, would you know fish out of the Mekong uh, canals and swim in them and bathe in them regularly, um, and it was a part, a kind of a joyful part of their experience, despite everything that was happening in Vietnam. Now, if you jump in the Mekong in the Mekong Delta. People tell you that you know your skin begins to itch very quickly. There's there's Oof. too much added into the the river system. That's not from dams. That's from agricultural production. So right. it's pesticides and antibiotics and other things that are put into the water there uh, through the land to produce agricultural products. So yeah. uh, from Cambodia down, the quality of water in the Mekong has really really degraded over the last two decades. You're 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 reminding reminding me, Brian, about the fact that the news just came out that here in Minnesota, the headwaters of the Mississippi River. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the entire Mississippi River has been declared one of these uh, endangered uh, major water systems because of all the pollution runoff and everything, loss of habitat, uh, climate change impacts and whatnot to the entire Mississippi River Basin. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Alan Basiste from Eyes on Earth and Brian Eiler from the Stimson Center in Washington, D.C., and we're discussing the strategic importance of the Mekong River in Southeast Asia. Gentlemen, we have about 15 minutes left uh, with our show. Uh, our longtime listeners know uh, that this show, I, I like to ask my guests about policy ideas that deliver potential solutions to the many challenges we tackle here on National Security This Week. What are some of the positive things that are happening in the Mekong River uh, Basin. What, what is being done to protect the region's future that the two of you have seen, both from a science and a policy perspective? I'll touch on that, and Brian will certainly speak more about the policies issues. 
there is an organization called the, the Mekong River Commission, which basically has um, all the countries of, below China are participants in that. And it's a government, it's basically a governmental organization that is trying, that is working to maintain the integrity of the river. Um, we, we indirectly are affiliated or supporting some of their work and, and they're using some of our information in their own data analysis. Um, and working with Wonders of the Mekong, which is trying to educate people about the, the value, the integrity, and the sustainability of the river. We're affiliated with them. Um, we have some contacts at universities, NGOs, um, that are also working in the region. So there are a number of players. We just had a major meeting a couple of days ago with, with it was 30 different organizations that are, are working effectively to try to gain data, understanding of what's happening in the basin and how to mitigate some of these impacts. Um, so there are a number of players, there are a number of activities and there are uh, quite a few in initiatives to try to address some of these concerns that we're bringing up and, and try to reduce some of these impacts that are adversely affecting the, the people, societies, and the economics on the basin. And Brian, policy uh, ideas? Yeah, I'll, I'll hit on three areas very briefly. One is that um, civil society groups or, or NGOs uh, and community groups have long been active uh, in pointing out ways that um, that one what the impacts are and how their lives are being changed but importantly you know solutions and alternatives to um, building these dams and the tenor of their discourse has only risen over the last five years and um, and I think our um, data and information we provide um, has greatly benefited um, their understanding and we we also have benefited from uh, learning from their understanding of how the river is impacted. So there's a really good kind of simpatico going on between um, uh, uh, local organizations, uh, some international organizations like IUCN uh, and the WWF um, and, and our team um, to, again, raise the volume on what's happening. Uh, just to highlight, you know, the NBC News did a story, NBC News with Lester Holt did a story on the Mekong and our Mekong Dam Monitor back in January um, and went to the region and interviewed some of these civil society leaders. And, and that wouldn't have happened, uh, I think, without, again, the fact that the, the tenor has been raised on, on this issue. Um, a second is the renewable energy transition. So back when Laos um, set course to become the battery of Southeast Asia in the 90s. And again, this was an idea that wasn't just Lao derived. It was you know, like the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and, sure. um, and many international regional actors kind of prodded Lao to, to take this pathway. Um, they, they never did kind of a SWOT analysis to say what the threat, the future threats to this would be. Right. And, and they, they didn't consider Thailand and Vietnam being able to produce a lot of new electricity through solar and wind uh, alternatives 20 years down the road. And lo and behold, this is happening in Vietnam and Thailand, and it's starting to happen in, Th in Laos as well. So it's, it's really disrupting the plans um, for these countries to build more and more dams. So that's a good thing. Um, so uh, to the extent that that's affecting 
and, and having the most damaging dams being removed off of the blueprint has yet to be seen. Mm. Now, uh, to this, uh, to the second point, though, Cambodia has postponed um, development of its two major mainstream dams until 2030. Um, and at the COP26 meeting last fall, Cambodia's environment minister said Mekong dams are not part of Cambodia's future in Cambodia. Uh, whether they will uphold those commitments uh, remains to be seen, but I think that's a that's a strong uh, plus uh, that has happened. And then finally, uh, China is becoming more transparent, and China is actually becoming more cooperative through its um, collaboration with the Mekong River Commission, uh, through information provision. Uh, I don't think we would be doing what we're doing um, by providing more and more data and opening the black box on China's dams if we didn't see China being willing to provide more data to the downstream. So we believe that we're a catalyst that's actually expediting China's information transparency um, to the, the, the downstream. Um, and since we've started our work, you know, there's just been numerous kind of steps taken by China to provide more information. Because again, like we're, we're showing the world what's happening in those dams. It's just really up to China then to, to um, bring their actual data to, uh, to, the, to the planning stages and to the research that's going on with the downstream stakeholders. And they're, they're doing this. A lot more needs to happen, but at least uh, we're quickening the pace of that information provision. So there are some positive developments despite the, the dire news. Uh, unfortunately, I, I don't think the right now the pace of positive developments is is out competing the negative, <laughs> uh, the leader's effects. Uh, but uh, that doesn't discourage us in our work. Yeah. How about the role of the United Nations or or or, or the United States in uh, in helping with these issues in the Mekong River Basin? Uh, maybe let's just concentrate on the United States. We only have about nine minutes left. Uh, what what is the United States doing to engage uh, partner nations uh, in that region, the stakeholders in the region, to act responsibly to protect uh, a sustainable ecosystem? while still, uh, you know, handling all of the needs that the people have for energy, fish, clean water, et cetera. Either one of you, if you want to start us off. I'll, I'll speak for a, a minute or two. And again, this is, this is a topic that Brian is much more versed in and knowledgeable, um, is that I, I alluded to it earlier, and the organization that funded my trip to Cambodia is funded by the state of by USAID. It's called Wonders of the Mekong. And they are trying, they're, I guess they're trying to do twofold. They're, they're collecting data, because data and transparency is key towards better policymaking, better, um, better basically mitigations of some of these impacts. And and they're also reach, reaching a lot of local communities, trying to empower the local communities to, to have their voices heard and, and to them to be able to sit at the table. So that is, that is one place where the United States is actively engaged in trying to bring more transparency, more data, more engagement to the impacts and the solutions that we've been addressing. So over to you, Brian. Yeah, you know, the whole... The whole damn story that's happening in, <laughs> in the Mekong, um, uh, pun intended, uh, started with the, the U.S. Uh, during the, the Johnson administration, actually uh, previous to that, um, during the Kennedy administration, but really ramped up 
um, during the Vietnam War era uh, in the Johnson administration, where um, he uh, forwarded uh, plans uh, to build dams on the Mekong. So a lot of these sites that we see being developed in the, the lower Mekong were actually first proposed by the U.S. government as a way to bring Ho Chi Minh to a negotiation table uh, and end the war and promote sustainable development across the entirety of the, um, the, 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 the peninsula of mainland Southeast Asia. That was a bad idea. Um, obviously, it never <laughs> happened. Ho Chi Minh didn't take him up on that. And if it would have, it probably would have led to <laughs> environmental deg degradation of the system uh, much earlier than it is now. Yeah. Um, so I think we do have a responsibility to address our legacy there. Um, but also, uh, the U.S. Has, uh, has, has, has fought hard to reconcile its history uh, within the region and to reestablish relations with Vietnam and, and to help build Vietnam into a very vibrant uh, and stable economy. Uh, Thailand is an ally of ours, a security ally of the United States. Um, and uh, we, again, um, have, have a long legacy of, of uh, maintaining and building those friendships and alliances and, um, and promoting stability within the region. So if... Um, food security issues creep up and water security issues creep up to the point of crisis or potentially conflict, all that hard work that has been done um, will you know, be undone um, by both the impacts of upstream dams and climate change. And when that happens, who's going to come in to put out the fires, right? We're going to be there too. Um, so as you said at the beginning of the, the call, John, um, it's this kind of a... Uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, by by staying engaged um, in with State Department programming or U.S. Uh, AID programming, there are, there are numerous universities from the United States. Uh, uh, some of them there, at Minnesota uh, and Wisconsin, both have great uh, Mekong research programs um, that that promote why. Um, the Mekong is important to America and also promote a sustainable um, security solutions for the region. So we're deeply engaged. Um, we need to continue to be engaged. Uh, and uh, if we don't, you know, again, uh, we're still going to jump in and have to put out the fires and at a much higher cost of, of doing so now. Yeah. So we only have a, about four minutes left. I'm going to give each of you one minute. Uh, any closing thoughts, anything we haven't covered today that uh, that our audience, uh, our listeners should know about? Uh, Alan, we'll start with you. Um, one thing that I didn't bring up, and, and I'll speak to it for a moment, is it takes time. We're measuring with satellites. We're measuring water at the surface, and we measure it throughout the globe. So as you alluded to, I mean, there's many other rivers around the world that have comparable issues and concerns. Um, it takes time for water at the surface to work its way through the soil, down into the groundwater, be released by springs, enter, enter the smalls, tributaries that eventually flow into the main stem. And therefore the satellite observation has a lead time of a month, sometimes even more, as to how much water will be flowing downstream. So that gives us a tremendous amount of insight as to how the river will be naturally rising up or down as far as impending drought, impending flood, and how to, to utilize those water resources effectively, knowing what will be flowing downstream in the, in the following months. So what we're hoping is that we can use our data to introduce better policy of how to effectively 
um, mitigate some of these severe impacts of how dams are altering the river and try to simulate more natural flow with the Mekong and hopefully other river basins as well around the world. And so our goal is, is certainly Mekong focused right now, but we, our, our larger goal is to, to take our technology, our monitoring systems and try to expand it out into other river basins in, in the world as well. Mm -hmm. And Brian? Yeah, we're, we're going to apply our toolbox, uh, hopefully next uh, in Nepal, looking at some uh, non-river related, but more climate and, and high mountain um, snow and rain uh, issues and, and look at the possibility of early warning and providing early warning on some high mountain disasters that are that could happen in Nepal. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you had mentioned the the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. This is a project that needs a lot of attention to the extent that we, we can put our toolbox to use there um, to the extent that we will uh, remains to be seen, but I think we do have ambition to look at that. Um, so I encourage those that are listening to check out the Mekong Dam Monitor. Um, this is a, a online platform that is um, tuned to speak to people who have just kind of a general knowledge about rivers or interest about environmental issues and kind of lead you into understanding what's happening on the Mekong. Um, and I also have to do a shameless plug uh, about my book, <laughs> Last Days of the Mighty Mekong. Um, it's, it's, it's again written for uh, beginners who are curious about this part of the world or curious about um, human impacts on river systems and how river systems are important to our histories and our cultures and economies. Um, and, uh, and just, you know, Google Mekong. There's the wide body of work out there uh, about this river. Uh, it's a fascinating part of the world. Um, if you can't go there, at least read about it. Uh, but since the pandemic, it looks to be subsiding. Uh, hopefully, we'll get more and more people visiting the region and learning more about it here in the years to come. Yeah. So the Last Days of the Mighty Mekong is Brian Eiler's book. And, and uh, Alan Basiste, Eyes on Earth. What's the website for Eyes on Earth? For all the scientists um, out there, <laughs> well, we do have a website with eyesonearth.org that they can go to, and they can use that to see some of the, the work that we've done, as well as work that we're actively engaged in. All right, Alan Basiste and Brian Eiler, thank you both so much for joining us today on National Security this week. Thanks, John. It's a real pleasure. Yes, thank you for inviting us, and happy to to share what we're doing with your larger audience. Yeah. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. Uh, one final note to share with you today. We did a couple of shows last year on the impacts of climate change on American national security interests. We'll continue to explore those challenges this year. Uh, today's topic on the Mekong River is sort of uh, an opportunity to think about these issues of, uh, of climate and, uh, and resiliency and protecting the environment. In the meantime, if you're interested in a fact-based approach to understanding climate change and how to increase resilience to climate change, I'll recommend a new series called Changing Planet, the premiere episode of which airs tonight at 7 p.m. Central Time on your local PBS station. Watching that TV show might help you to understand future guests we'll have here on National Security This Week. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.